welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. Today we're going to do something a little different. I have requested that people send me questions that I will answer uh, during this podcast. So I have a list of questions here that I'll be addressing. But first, let me say a couple of other things. We have canceled the New Zealand retreat that was due to happen in April 2020 due to the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, It didn't make sense to have people come from all over the world to be contained in a small space and kind of sharing food out of the same kitchen area. So that's canceled. I also am inclined to offer a weekly gathering online for people anywhere in the world, of course, because this particular time that we are now in is getting more and more dangerous, as we can observe from the news. I expect we're going to have a lot of deaths worldwide and um, perhaps a lot of quarantined areas and people will be confined in their homes. And people are frightened. They're, they're frightened. They're worried. There's, of course, health worries. The number one would be the number one worry. And there are economic worries in addition. So people are nervous. There's a lot of anxiety and there is some depression. So I want to do a series. I'll continue the podcast series, which will be offered, of course, for free twice a month. But I'm going to be doing essentially eight sessions a month, which will require a nominal charge of $10 per session for you to join. And those will be live. We can have discussions and you can bring up your concerns and we'll address them Of course, with the idea that we need a dharmic perspective, I've been speaking a lot lately about acceptance and courage as the two themes in my life at the moment that are very, very strong. Basically, having to say, okay, this is happening, not be in denial, right? This is happening. It's not that we didn't have any already existing problems in the world, Of course, we did. We have huge problems. Um, But now we, those have been in a way supplanted in terms of priorities by this virus, which is, like I said, extremely dangerous. So with all of that in mind, I thought it would be useful for us to have a place that we can can try to calm down together. So I'm actually calling this Seeking Calm in the Chaos. That's what the name of this online paid subscription, you just have to pay one time for one session. You don't have to sign up for a whole thing, just any time you want to drop in. And I'm going to arrange the time slots for people in both America and Europe and also in Australia, so that you'll find a time slot that works for you. Um, All right, let's get to the questions. This is from Heather in Denmark. Both of my daughters, now 9 and 13, have very negative self-image 
despite my best efforts to give them the best experiences possible, starting with home birth, attachment parenting, attending to their needs, supporting them in developing and pursuing interests that suit them, and accepting and loving them just as they are. Sadly, it feels like my influence on their conditioning is limited. They have struggled with friendships, especially around ages 7 to 12, and their self-talk is heartbreakingly negative, especially around their bodies and appearance. Puberty is so hard for girls, especially when it hits early. It is difficult to handle. What to say when they say negative things about themselves and coming to terms with my own sadness about it. You often refer to how we are influenced by our conditioning, and I wonder if you could elaborate on the various forces at play and what we can do as parents to help our growing girls love themselves. Well, well, you the parenting conditioning, of course, is extremely powerful. But cultural conditioning, especially for teenagers, is extraordinarily powerful. And perhaps, in a way, it, it surpasses in that phase whatever influence the parents are having. The parents, fortunately, have a lot of influence in the earlier years. But by the time they get, the kids get to be teenagers, they many of them, not all, uh, it's some sort of separation occurs in which they're feeling their own independent, autonomous power, and they're looking to their peers for answers and for how they play it in the world and for what matters and what to pay attention to. So one thing I would say to you is to not blame yourself or or feel too much like you're failing as a parent because your girls have an obsession with self-image. This is a problem worldwide, as you know. The whole social media domain is all about self-image. Whatever else they're putting up there, even if it's about a cute puppy, it's also, the subtext is... Aren't I cool for finding this little cute video of a cute puppy? Um, Maybe not always. Maybe some people are genuinely wanting to make everyone happy, of course. But a lot of what goes on is really a look-at-me program. More than has ever been in history, it it is the cultural norm for young people to be living their lives on their imaginary stages, that is, their social media platforms. And so this conditioning that your daughters are experiencing is probably beyond your control unless you make them get off their screens and you take them to some remote place, you know, go live with the Eskimos. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe they're all on screens too, who knows. Um... It's very, very difficult to have a tremendous influence on teenagers. And I hear you about how sad it makes you to see your girls uh, perhaps demean themselves and not see their own beauty. So I would say the only real thing you could do without being a kind of oppressive mother or try to make them 
conform to some other way that might limit their exposure to these things, the only real thing you can do is just keep telling them how beautiful they are, keep affirming them, keep loving them as you have been. And I'd say the adjustment is really in yourself to understand that the conditioning is far bigger than just parents. Just parental conditioning is huge, but there's plenty of other conditioning that happens. And that is underway. And we just happen to live in a time whereby the conditioning of the peer groups and the culture in general is not a wise kind of conditioning. It's a damaging kind of conditioning. So let's hope that they grow out of it at some point and wake up to it. And there is, by the way, a kind of cool counter-conditioning that's going on with some of the young people um, who are moving away from all of that and who are kind of anti-image. So, you know, we wouldn't want them to go too extreme in that direction either, you know, but, um, but I think a, a balance is in order. So, dear, you're no doubt a wonderful, wonderful mother. I know who you are, of course, and yeah, I, I know you're, you've, you've done it really, really well. So, oh, you just, you know, as you know as a mother, as all of you parents know, they come in with their own little personality. You see it from the time they're babies. You know, they've got their own little, little life that's theirs. Just as you, when you were a teenager, you felt truly like you were your own person. And I'd say many of us were by that time not listening to our parents. I know I wasn't. I was getting away from them as much as could I could. <laughs> okay. All right, so now here's a something, something similar a bit, uh, also about kids. Liz in Chicago, she has a question on behalf of one of her friends. How to respond to our kids when they express their anxiety about the climate crisis and what it means for their future? Okay, um, I'd say first off, not to deny their anxiety and their concern. That would only increase their anxiety because the information is rolling in and they're hip to it. So you cannot try to say, oh, don't worry about it, um, or it's not going to be that bad, or any of those things. I, my tendency would be to say, we don't know how it's going to roll out. Sometimes our imaginings are worse than it turns out to be, possibly, um, but that we need to really love our lives now and enjoy our days and have fun and be kind and love everything you love and everyone you love. I think that would be my inclination. It's what I am saying to younger people. Um, I have been very surprised, very surprised by a few of the teenagers I know whose parents do not hide this reality from them. And these teenagers are 
I mean, living very fully in their lives. And they seem to have a clear picture that life is going to get a lot harder in the future. Now, they probably do deal with anxiety about that, as we all do. But they don't deny it. And I've sometimes asked their parents, who are friends of mine, um, do you think it's because they're teenagers and they don't really understand fully concepts like mortality? Like, I know I didn't when I was young. I felt, not that I thought I was really immortal or anything, but I just really didn't think about it much. I mean, I, life, you're just roaring along in life, and it's like this distant thing that might, will, or will someday happen. But in the case of these young ones, uh, my friends said, no, they are they are not really planning much of a future. They're really living life now. So these are teenagers who are 16 and 19, uh, and I do know a few others in a similar um, situation. It's just pretty fascinating. Um, I also would say that you need to be careful case by case. If you're dealing with a kid who's already depressed, you would want to mitigate somewhat what you said because uh, you don't want to, you know, put them over the edge. Um, but I think that truth-telling, you know, as the Buddha said, always speak the truth, but only the truth that is skillful. Um, we can't, we just don't lie about it. Just don't say, no, no, it's all going to get worked out. That just increases someone's tension because you know you're being lied to. This one is anonymous. Some of the people asked to be anonymous in their questions. My dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in his 50s. We don't know whether it's genetic, and I worry about this as his oldest child. I've used the worry to make changes for the better, working less, spending more time with my kids, and doing things that I enjoy. I wish I could have some kind of idea of what the experience would be like, also what my dad's experience might have been like since he couldn't express himself. I wonder how I could make the best use of it if it comes and how I could prepare myself so that I could be at peace with it. Would I lose the ability to direct my attention? I once heard you speak of a teacher who was afflicted and recited mantras. It would be lovely to hear more about the way he lived. Yes, so this refers to a story I've told about a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda, who in his older age got Alzheimer's. But because he had a lifelong habit um, of chanting Buddhist sutras, uh, he he could still chant the sutras. And I think that's um, often the case with, with Alzheimer's. People still have some part of their brain that is connected to music and perhaps recitation, although with the, with the sutras they have a kind of um, melody that goes with them. Um, so it, some part of the brain uh, retains that for, long, for longer. Um, and it goes to a lifelong habit um, of using his own, you know, attention in a certain way. Now, 
I don't know that it always works that a habitual way of being uh, becomes the mode of operation in the in the experience of a brain that's degenerating. Um, I don't know that answer. Um, I've seen in certain cases people who were very sort of aggressive in their earlier years get Alzheimer's and, you know, turn into sort of gentle creatures. And I've seen it in reverse. I've seen people who were pretty, you know, pretty nice characters get very, very uh, aggravated and tense and out of control and angry with um, with Alzheimer's or other forms of, of, men, of brain degeneration. Um, I... I cannot answer this question in any other way than that. Um, what I can say, though, is all the things that you're that you're doing, which I guess with some hope of it being helpful if this did happen to you, um, working less, spending time with the children, doing things you enjoy, and so on, that's just good practice anyway. That's just a smart way to live. So... I'd say there's no there's no downside with that, um, <clears throat> and of course I, I think this probably um, well. First of all, there are some interesting medications coming online that that slow down or even halt the progression of Alzheimer's, and probably by the time you need it, they'll be more developed. Uh, and there's also some very natural products that I hear are really good for brain health, and you might take a look into those. Uh, so being very practical and knowing that there's there's much of this life is completely out of our control. From another vantage point, we might say you'd be lucky to live that long to the point of getting Alzheimer's, not that you'd want to get Alzheimer's, but just that you would be old enough to get it. So who knows what's going to be, and... I would really recommend um, just all the things you've just said uh, in this question to just enjoy. Enjoy your life. These days that we have, right, these, these days and nights that we have to keep experiencing, to keep looking into the eyes of the people we love and having a laugh and having a meal and taking a walk, you know, we we future trip a lot in our privileged places. We tend to, we want the party to go on, and we want to know that it's going to go on to a certain point. But we don't have that guarantee, and no one ever has in history. And many, many, many people live now so day to day um, that future consideration is a luxury beyond their wildest dreams. And that is actually how it's been a lot for people for a long time. So we, in our, in our privileged world, we need to make some adjustments and realize that this show could go dark for any one of us at any point. I mean, what, so look at this couple who just went on this cruise, on this... Diamond Princess, that cruise ship, they perhaps saved up, perhaps it's an anniversary cruise, who knows, but, you know, expecting to have a lovely time. They get this 
lengthy quarantine on that boat. Hundreds of them get the virus. And one of them here in Australia, an older couple in their 70s, he just died the other day. And his wife also has the virus. You know, it's just poof, poof. So we have to really recognize that we'll handle things the best we can day by day at the point that it comes. That's why I say accepting what is happening here and now. Having courage. Basically, that's saying, okay, I will stand up to this, right? I will see it. I will experience it. And that's the best we can hope for. Okay, the next one is from Kent in San Francisco. Several months ago, I flew to L.A. and witnessed in the middle of the night my older brother's last breath. Just a few Saturdays ago, I spoke at his memorial. Perhaps the saddest thing for me was that in later years, he was so unhappy. I recall that you are not a believer in reincarnation, so given that... Do you have any comforting thoughts in this regard? And this is a very um, pertinent uh, question for me because my brother also died. He died when he was 38. And he had a difficult, very difficult life, really difficult. And one of the great sadnesses for me in that was I wished that he could have had some years, even a few years, even one year of great, joy and happiness. That said, my brother did actually have many moments of happiness and could laugh pretty easily and he was a total sweetheart and he loved easily and so there's that. So I wonder, Kent, if you can find those moments. Perhaps your brother had some particular interests that Perhaps we can imagine if he did have those interests, that in those moments his mind was on those, on that kind of focus, or that he had a love in his life at some point, at any point. Um, and also to, I've had to so many, so much of my life has had to be this surrender to the unfairness or the apparent unfairness of how things roll out here. That some people have very lucky childhoods. They were born to wonderful, loving parents, and they just had a, a constitution or whatever that was just buoyant. Others, not at all, right? And so this incredible disparity uh, that goes on here. Some people are born with perfect health. They eat nails and drink vodka, <laughs> through their life, and uh, others who are doing everything possible to stay healthy uh, get some hideous disease or, or are born with terrible infirmities and physical challenges. So the adjustment, of course, has to be within yourself. That Well, sometimes I ask the question, even though my brother's life was hard, I ask, okay, would he have rather been here or not? 
and for sure he would have rather been here. <laughs> he was he was into the show, even though it was hard, and he sometimes said he didn't want to be here, but he was into it. Um, and I think even with people who commit suicide, um, perhaps they still would have rather been here than not, but maybe it gets to a point where they just can't stand it any longer. Um, so if you answer yes to that question, your brother, yeah, he still would have rather been here, then that was the life he got. It wasn't, as you're saying, it was not a happy life, but that was the life he got. And, and you, you know, you, your love for him can just include that, even though it's a bit sad to consider that. That's how I feel with my brother. I, I of course, would have loved to have seen him have more happiness. But that was just not to be. Okay, this is from Judy in Oregon. I guess my biggest personal and world issue is about doing. I'm a therapist and a parent, my two areas of doing. I was always at the head of the class, but I haven't felt charged up for doing much activism in the past many years. In fact, I've moved to a rural area for my soul's well-being, so I'm less involved than before as a city dweller. I even play golf now, which is evidence of utter depravity. Actually, it's a great way to focus and to examine the ego of hopes, pride, discouragement, and etc. I suppose in the competition on the golf course, there, <laughs> there are those things. I used to expect that I'd return to teaching about living, but I'm shy to do that. Also, perhaps too old and lazy. So the question, why have I stopped? One can say it's acquiescence to aging except that it's nothing new. I realize you can't offer me a path. In a way, the question is how to be in the world as an elder, how to show up in spite of invisibility. Let me just add to my question that I'm spending most of my time in creative arts now, and while I do love what I'm doing, I feel a bit of a turncoat from all of my socialization, without proficiency enough for it to be either valuable, redemptive, or stunning. I know that action seems to be therapeutic, so to rephrase the question, how to be an elder in these times which seem to become more apocalyptic looking with every passing week? And this is quite interesting because she is in Oregon where some cases have just broken out of the virus. Yeah, um, well, for one thing, when we get older, we're... We're not going at full speed, you know, <laughs> and you know that, dear. Um, and there is an interesting way that we, you know, we um, place our value about ourselves on our productivity. We 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 want to see some response to our efforts. We want people to applaud, you know, in whatever ways, metaphorically or literally. Um, and especially if that's been a, a habit or if that's been the case for you in life that you have had a lot of feedback from others about your good work, 
then when that's not the, not happening, there can be a kind of collapse of a certain identification of who you are and your own sense of value. It's a challenge to not be very engaged when one has been. It's not, it's not, it sounds simple. People, you know, think of it as some glorious retirement. But there have been studies that show a lot of people in so-called retirement are kind of floundering. And there's all kinds of, there's a program I heard about. I was driving in my car in Hawaii years ago, and I heard this fascinating program about um, this organization that gets retired people back to work um, in whatever ways they can because they, they see it as a, a need for their mental health. Now, that said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to ramp up whatever it was that you were doing before being a therapist and taking care of the children who I assume are getting older by the day. Um, but um, that whatever it is you're, you're doing, whatever it is your your creative expression, to really honor that as this is my creative expression now and to really surrender to that and enjoy it. And one of the things I've been aware of in this in this coronavirus spread is if one were to get this and if you're of a certain age you're at higher risk 60s and above you're at higher risk of death um the whole it's game over pretty quick if you get it and it's such that it's going to kill you all of the dreams and schemes are over in a flash, right? And of course, like I said just earlier in this, uh, that can always be the case. It can be you go to the drugstore or the drug or the grocery store and you have a, an accident on the way. But, um, but in particular, when you're watching it on the the global scale, it comes home very strongly that a lot of the things that you thought mattered and the ways that one was trying to position oneself in life for some kind of meaning uh, suddenly has no meaning, doesn't matter. So I think it's very useful, very important to, like I said before, honor and dignify your life right now as it is following your own authentic movements and try your best to set aside the inner critic and the voice that says this isn't enough and here we are in the apocalyptic moment and what am I doing? I'm making art. Maybe that's the most wonderful possible thing you could be doing. So for all of us, enjoy your life, your precious life. Just enjoy whatever lights your heart. That is going to be your gift to everyone around you. People who are afraid, people who are depressed, people who are nervous, anxious, worried. You will be a little island of, you know, calm or of a brightness. It doesn't have to be an artificial 
happiness or anything like that, but just at least a kind of bright energy. Okay. This is from Suzanne in Melbourne. She wants to know about the idea of non-identification that is real and not just a form of denial, and what are the ways to get there? Well, it's a lot of what we just talked about. Non-identification, so what that usually refers to in spiritual talk in Dharma circles is people who are highly identified with essentially their ego, who are who are very ego-driven. So they're that's 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 like strong identification. Um the non-identification can be um, misunderstood and misused, as she says, a form of denial. So where's the, the sweet spot? I'd say that not taking things too personally when you're out and about and not being overly concerned even to yourself with how you're appearing to you or to anyone else. Now, that said... It's very hard to be fully non-identified. It it just is. If someone's out to get you, if someone's betrayed you, if someone's saying mean things about you that aren't even true, um, you're going to feel hurt and it's going to sting, especially the ego, perhaps, you know. There's going to be a rising up inside and that is natural. So it's impossible, I would say, for any normal person to be fully non-identified. But to... Lean to, lean as best you can to not taking sort of more um, garden variety affronts too personally. Um, You know, when you see someone's just uh, cutting you off in traffic or the equivalent of, or someone who's just always on some kind of trip and a lot of people experience that this person is incredibly difficult. So they're difficult to you as well. How can you take it personally? You really can't. Um, So, and then the other part of identification is constantly needing to make whatever story is happening in your life about yourself, right? That it's like all all roads lead to you (laughs) in in the world. Um, That is a habit that is just miserable. You know, it's a self-obsession. So another way to understand this is to just start to really unhook, unhook best you can from these constant stories about me, 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 you know? I'm sure we all have friends or family members who every time you speak with them, you're just hearing stories that are about them just a continual rap, and you wonder, is that what goes on in their head all the day long? Just the story of me, as I've called it many times and wrote about it in Passionate Presence many years ago. Um, The story of me, the me project, constant identification, very wearying, very exhausting, (laughs) and a story with a very unhappy ending, (laughs) you know. Actually, you know, just kind of with that with that kind of build up of me, 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 suddenly poof, 
me is not on the stage anymore. If you're going along and you're less identified, what sort of happens organically is that you become more identified with life as a whole, with the great mysterious thrust of life force. That becomes more where you're kind of watching and being delighted by and being uh, resonant with and being in empathy with. So that when the me, that is you, slips away out of this world, you haven't invested all of your waking moments on that story. You've had a lot of other understandings that that see that the show's going on. So these are just some random thoughts about non-identification. It might have made sense for me to uh, consider these things before I sat down and read these, but I wanted this to have a fresh sound like we do in Dharma Dialogues, have a kind of... Um, off-the-cuff component. All right, one more. This is from Annette in Denmark. Years ago, I listened to a conversation about the freedom you start to experience more and more as you let go of ideas and assumptions and as you get more and more present in the waking up process. And the paradox is that as freedom is experienced at one level, you get less free at another level. In a way, your choices for action will get more limited. In a sense, it is also my experience. I am more and more compelled to do, quote, the right thing, end quote, in a moral sense, but also in regard to how I treat myself and my body. It seems that I have to be pretty strict to do routines, taking care of myself, yoga, walks, fresh air, etc., or I will more easily get depressed. Sometimes it is very inconvenient in a life with a lot of other things to do as well, and I wish I didn't have to be so strict, but if I let go, I slip into depression and anxiety. I've been wondering if the morning meditation practice you hear spiritual leaders have, for instance, the Dalai Lama, is a necessity more than a choice as a way to get centered and getting the intentions clear instead of getting caught up in the dark forces of the mind and the world. My question is, is it just another idea that as one is more and more awake, one is more prone to depression and anxiety? Ideas tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies, so I would like to let go of this one. If it is more an idea than a general truth or the general experience for many. The depression I'm talking about is not the understandable one, the one where you react to the state of many horrible things in the world. It's the one where the inner critic takes over and sees things in a negative light that is a distortion of realities. So this is a question about when you're, as the waking up process occurs, you find yourself having to be a lot more impeccable than perhaps you used to be. You feel maybe more constrained, as she's indicating, more, more constrained in terms of the um, emphasis on your own morality that becomes, I, I speak about this in my book as well. I call it natural ethics, that when you're, as you wake up more and more, that is, you sensitize yourself to life, your actions need to be more and more impeccable to align with that waking up so that you don't feel constant remorse and regret. And so you're 
more you're more careful than any any mode of ethics that I any kind of book of ethics that I know of. Your own inner natural ethics are actually more severe in a way. Um, you don't want to make a toe step, and you can see the consequences often ahead of time. So you don't make the toe step. Now, that's not to say we're all perfect and we don't come off the path plenty enough, but quite a bit less so than before, before you became much more sensitive. So um, does that come necessarily with anxiety and depression? Well, not really. The the waking up, the the sensitizing, does make you aware of a lot more suffering. Um, And you do feel a lot more sadness. Um, There's that. But you also feel a lot more joy. I often describe it as widening the spectrum of existence, of, of, of experience. Um, so on one end is great joy, and the other end is great sorrow. And your big, wide view can include both of them and does include both. So you're more easily delighted in many ways. When you have sympathetic joy, for instance, when you're feelings of this great camaraderie, this great um, interbeingness is very big, then you're delighted in other beings' delights, right? I was swimming in the lake near my house um, yesterday. I have a, we have an ocean nearby, about a mile away, and across the park from the ocean is this incredible tea tree lake. It's surrounded by tea trees that drop their leaves into the water. So you're literally swimming kind of in in tea, a light form of tea from tea trees. And uh, it's kind of fantastic, great for your skin, and it's very lovely. There was a little new family there. They just moved here, and two little toddler kids and so we're, you know, we're all swimming, kind of chatting, because I was telling them about where to find things and where the health food store is and so on. And one of their little ones was three. Um, right near where we were swimming, there were two beautiful ducks with kind of turquoise, some turquoise feathers on them and a kind of turquoise beak. It was really, really gorgeous. And they were right near us, like you could almost touch them. They would have swum away if we tried, but they were quite near. And I pointed out to the three-year-old, and the three-year-old just squealed with delight. Because probably she'd never been actually swimming in a body of water with a duck swimming right next to her, or two, actually it was two ducks. So you might have, she might have seen them from afar, but she probably wasn't actually swimming with them until yesterday. And her delight in that recognition, that observation. I mean, she just kept staring at them and trying to get them to come over and and just talking about the ducks and talking about how, you know, look at them. And anyway, it's just adorable. And it was, it so gladdened my heart. So not only was the, uh, the, the being in the water and paddling about was delightful, but sharing that moment. And it's very nice, of course, to share a kind of first with uh, a child and to see that level of delight. But I feel it also with so many of the creatures I observe around where I live uh, on my property. Um, 
you know, I have a whole bird life here, as some of you might have guessed. And so they all have their personalities, these magpies that come around in the morning and the evening. I call them Heckle and Jekyll, and they're hilarious. Um, and my turkeys, they all have names and they all have personalities. And um, the bush turkeys, they're quite large and very interesting. Um, I'm so easily, like I laugh many times a day watching what goes on out there. Um, uh, I watch them sometimes sunning themselves, the turkeys, and they spread out their wings so that their whole wing underneath can get get sunned and kind of dried probably. And just um, yes, the stillness that they exhibit when they're doing that, like they'll lay there a long time. So these are the ways in which delight is on offer when the awareness is, when there's an awake awareness. Delight is on offer as well. You basically feel everything more intensely. You feel the sorrow. Yes, it's heartbreaking, right? It's incredibly, it's the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. It is rampant. And so is love, and so are the little delights. Looking into the eyes of the children, looking into the eyes of your friends or your lovers or your parents, being grateful and being tender with everything. I'm feeling these days so tender. I could actually cry at any moment, not just, not about sadness necessarily. It's about the poignancy of all of this. We take a lot of things for granted. And sometimes it takes a real shock to the system to wake up to what the real story is here. So... For you who are listening, don't let any of this scare you. This is all meant to be an offering, a hand-holding of saying, yes, let's be here together. Let's look at things very clearly and let's celebrate, be helpful, and be true. This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session with me by phone or in person if you're in Australia. And you can view the upcoming events, such as the online sessions we'll be launching soon. If you're a regular listener, please consider making either a one-time or a recurring tax-deductible donation, which really helps with the production costs. And assuming you like these podcasts, please leave us a review wherever you're getting yours. Till next time.